wasted on the oceans and upon our seas, fish full of mercury. In 1971, the late Marvin Gaye made a great shift in the lyrical content of his music from love songs to things happening in everyone's lives. You know, what's going on? The love of his life, Tammy Terrell, recently had died in his arms after suffering a brain tumor. Gay, like other artists in the early 1970s, like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, began to focus on the ecology, our environment. After all, 1970 was the birth of Earth Day, April 22nd. The United States Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Air Act, and two years came the Clean Water Act. At the time, Marvin Gaye was the voice of Motown, America's rhythm and blues based in Detroit, the industrial home of America's car assembly plants. If Marvin wanted to know what was going on above in our skies, in our lakes and rivers, so did your mama, your daddy, and your grandparents. Despite what Motown record label head Barry Gordy thought, black and brown people too were interested in environmental justice and wanted a life free of environmental racism. The 70s awareness was a stark change from the blissful ignorance of the 1950s. Once upon a time, back in the late 1940s and early 50s, the far south side of Chicago was still a wilderness. So bike rides meant sidewalks sometimes, curbs when you could, but more often than not, coasting behind cars and buses and trucks. One longtime Chicagoan, F.R. Womble, remembers when the Morgan Park area was considered wilderness as the city continued to expand southward. I remember growing up in the country, they called it. See, my parents were part of the great migration from the south to the north. So they lived in the area that is now called Brownsville. And my mom and dad met across the back porch because those tenements, they all had those back porches. So they courted across the back porches. Well, in, I believe it was 1948, we moved to Morgan Park because I was under two years old. I remember that. I remember hearing about that. I don't remember the actual thing. But you know, it was wonderful because it was free and open and there was so much nature around. And my dad, having been a farmer in Missouri, grew his own vegetables right in the backyard so I could go out and, and pick a tomato off of the uh, fence that was ripening and try to get to it before the birds did. Oh, eat it yeah. with some salt, sit out in the backyard under the hose, go out. We had a cherry tree and a grapevine. My parents did uh, canning. My father made wine. My mother made jams. So nice. we really lived the country life. And 
I can remember riding my bike. You said bats. I remember riding my bike at night down the alley trying to get home before I would get in too much trouble because the street lights were on and the bats flying real low, right, right, right around my shoulders as I was riding down the street. Morgan Park was, it was a wilderness. I, I, I don't remember seeing any wild animals in the yard or anything like that, but there were evidences that they had been there. So it was really the country life. It was wonderful, it was idyllic. I mean, it was wonderful. Then one day people came, more and more, moving in, cutting trees, building houses and schools and factories. Chicago's south and southeast along Lake Michigan, along the Calumet River, factories arose, coal plants, car factories, steel factories, industry. Hey. On the outskirts of cities, trucks spray DDT, a pesticide now widely known to kill mosquitoes and other bugs. In humans, DDT later was scientifically proven to cause cancer, mental development delay, miscarriages, and male infertility. The pretty mist could lead to asthma, food, and skin allergies. I can remember, you know, sitting watching the uh, streets and sand truck come by spraying for mosquito abatement. And we as kids riding our bicycles in the back of it because we didn't want the mosquitoes on us either. So, right. you know, we would ride through it. You know, it wouldn't, it, I mean, it was not like a torrential shower. It was just a fine mist that hit us. And then after I went to college and read about the silent uh, Rachel Carson's, the silent spring, it was like, oh hell, I was riding through this stuff, you know, so. Right, did you, you know, know, did you know at the time when you were riding your bike that the trucks were spraying pesticides. Sounds like you didn't find out till college. No, we knew it was spraying pesticides because we didn't want the mosquitoes either, but we didn't okay. know how deadly it was. We didn't know the ramifications that could possibly come to us later in life. You know, we didn't know. What and were, we what, really- What were some of those ramifications, if you don't mind me asking? Well, you know, um, I'm sure that I'm sure that in this area, there were a lot of pollutants in the air and a lot of my peers have had, uh, I don't know how to express it other than to say some early signs of, I wouldn't think that they would have had uh, any kind of cancer or anything like that, you know, but they have, you know, or, or any kind of other oddities, you know, health health problems, health issues, you know. Right, right. I always had bronchial problems, you know, maybe it was from that. I don't know. You know, I've had chronic bronchitis practically all my life except here recently. As I've gotten older, it seems to have taken a backseat to other maladies I've had, you know, so I don't have that issue now. But that was one of the things that I thought was 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 inherent with that situation now in retrospect did you think about the risk 
that those plants or the pollution that they could produce a problem or just it was just a part of life having a plant in your area there was a um paint plant sherman williams paint plant and the smell the stench of that was just overwhelming sometimes you know so that is a concern now to me as i think back on it you know and 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 the fact that across from the sherman williams plant was what is now um the highway but it was called Doty road and they would take the garbage over there and burn it so we had two uh assaults in the area we had the stench of the garbage burning and the smell of the industrialism of uh sherman williams paint factory you know so yeah i thought about that i i and i was very concerned about that yes in retrospect urban areas like detroit and chicago the smokestack plants steel factories and other potentially toxic places like paint plants just happen to be away from affluent areas. Ironically, they happen to be in poorer neighborhoods where redlined black and brown families lived. This was just the cost of business, automation, industrialization. This was the cost of making America great. Better things for better living through chemistry. Better things for better living through chemistry for the finer world we want. Better things for better living through chemistry. CEO made profits, and poor families ended up with black boys in need of inhalers to treat their childhood asthma. But this episode isn't about the past that still affects us today. It's about two Midwest cities where activists of color are organizing to speak up, speak out, and set their communities on a better, healthier path of environmental justice in face of corporate and government opposition. Today, we look at the fight for clean air and clean water in cities with black and brown neighborhoods, Chicago, Illinois, and Flint, Michigan. I'm Valerie Johnson, and this is Interludes. Interludes, a pure lighthouse production, brought to you by A1 Pestmasters. For all your exterminating and pest control needs, call A1 Pestmasters. And now, all the way live from the south side of Chicago, Give it up for your host, Valerie Johnson. What's going on? That was the question Marvin Gaye famously raised nearly 50 years ago. The answer is environmental racism. So you ask, 
What is environmental racism? It is, as sociologist Robert Bulliard reported following a 20-year study, that above other factors, beginning, quote, race to be more important than social economic status in predicting the location of the nation's commercial hazardous waste facilities, end quote. In other words, if you're looking for pollution and waste facilities, find the black and brown people. In Chicago, that means looking to the city's southeast side. Early next year, that area could become home to a metal shredding plant that few, if any, residents want. General Iron, as the plant was known, had been located on the city's affluent north side until a major civic and private business project called Lincoln Yards sought out their site for a new concert stadium and retail and residential development. It was a deal that then-mayoral candidate Lori Lightfoot expressed reservations about due to its push from former mayor Rahm Emanuel and its possible impact on the 10th Ward. You can now hear Mayor Lightfoot avoided taking a strong position on the Lincoln Yard's General Iron Matter and the National Geographic documentary City So Real, which addresses the issue. That avoidance apparently has turned into a tacit endorsement for Mayor Lightfoot and 10th Ward Alderman Susan Sardowski-Garcia. Garcia declined an interview request for the podcast. The Metal Shredder's CEO has used print media to make his case for the plant's future. According to Steve Joseph, CEO of Reserve Management Group, parent company of the alleged polluter, beginning, quote, General Iron is closing not relocating, end quote. Joseph penned that statement in an editorial in the November 4th Daily Southtown entitled, General Iron Buyer, We're a Recycler, Not a Polluter. In Joseph's words, the project slated for the Southeast side has become, beginning quote, a misplaced target of attacks, distortions, and vitriol, end quote. Joseph described the project as, beginning quote, a metal shredding business, end quote. Joseph's response to community marches and vocal opposition to the project that states the facts of the case, including the demographic shift of shutting down an alleged toxic polluter in an economically booming, predominantly white section of Chicago via Lincoln Park to a majority lower income black and brown neighborhood, the southeast side of Chicago, this, of course, is the definition of environmental racism. It is why civic groups like the Southeast Environmental Task Force, representing Hedgewich, Sag Valley, Bush, South Deering, and South Chicago, had experienced some success in at least slowing down adding another metal recycling facility to increase the neighborhood's air pollution. As reported in mid-November by the Chicago Sun-Times, an official within the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, sent a letter to the city warning city leaders that there could be a civil rights inquiry opened 
if the city issued final building permits to Joseph's RMG company. According to the Sun-Times, RMG has been cited by the city numerous of times and has paid 18,000 to cover past complaints. It's no secret that sections of the South Side and the Southeast Side have historically been dumping grounds for companies in the name of city tax revenue. There is the so-called toxic donut that is Altgeld Gardens, a housing project built on a landfill and in the airspace of plants of the 10th Ward and other landfills. If you're looking for elevated numbers of cases of mercury and lead poisoning, find the places where black and brown people live. They happen to be places like Altgeld Gardens and Little Village, a predominantly Latino area where coal plants have left neighborhood kids vulnerable to respiratory illnesses, brown boys and girls in need of their inhalers to treat childhood asthma. Look up to the smoky skies on the southeast side and they will likely lead you by the Ford Motor Company assembly plant on Torrance Avenue where they make those police interceptor SUVs. What's just as alarming is that these groups can look across Lake Michigan to the environmental debacle first reported more than five years ago that continues to impact daily life in one predominantly black city. Remember Flint? Remember the flow of brown slush that oozed out of the lead-lined pipes? when a former Michigan governor switched from their supply to tainted river water? Remember the celebrities donating pallets of clean bottled water to needy families as if Flint was some third world country? Well, the Ebola threat and the police shooting of Michael Brown in 2014 have made way for the coronavirus pandemic and the police shooting of Breonna Taylor in 2020. All the while, the plight of the Flint water crisis has continued. Today, Michelle Mapson of Black Millennials for Flint has an update on issues in that city as well as Memphis. But first, let's talk with Peggy Salzar, Executive Director of Southeast Environmental Task Force about opposing another metal plant in her neighborhood. Welcome, Peggy Salzar. How are you today? I'm fine, and thank you for inviting me to this. Um, that's a mouthful, right? The Southeast Environmental Task Force. We we call ourselves CETF. You know, the acronym SETF is just so much easier than saying the Southeast Environmental Task Force. <laughs> so great. When we say CETF, that's what we mean. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Wonderful. You've described a proposed project in the 10th Ward as environmental racism. What is environmental racism and how do you and what do you feel would be the impact of the plant that's coming to the surrounding community? Okay, well, let me give you first a little bit of historical context really quick. Southeast side, mm -hmm. known as the hub of the steel industry at one time, right? Mm -hmm. yes. And it was also an area of opportunity, especially for immigrants coming into the country. And so, you know, steel mills, industry, dirty industry, pollution. And as you know, way back in the early 1900s, of course, you lived where you worked. 
So people lived with this pollution. They didn't understand the impacts of it back then. And so this is the way the world went. Move forward, right? Fast forward to the 1980s and the steel industry is shuttering, right? Jobs are being lost. Communities are feeling the impact of that whole, you know, change in, in paradigm there. And uh, I lived in the community, Southeast side of Chicago, right? Yep. And my husband worked in the steel mills. When we were first mm -hmm. married, he worked there and he had thought he was gonna be there forever. Right. And so we were devastated when US Steel closed its doors and he lost his job. But then I thought about it after we got over that initial shock, it was like, well, you know what? This is an opportunity for our community to transition into something other than what it has been because I didn't understand really our role that we played in the whole economy of Chicago. And so I thought that we were gonna see changes coming down the road, right? The rebuilding, revitalization, I understood pollution, I, I knew about brownfields, and I thought there'd be an attempt to clean up, you know, our part of the city and start rebuilding. Well, here we are, how many years later? How many years, how many decades later, and that process, what little took place has taken this long and it isn't really, it really didn't go in the direction I anticipated. Instead, what the city decided was, it was so much easier to leave our part of the city as an area to dump things that nobody else wanted because then it wouldn't require the massive amounts of money to clean it up right mm. easier just to leave it as is it's always been that way people are accustomed to it people are accepting of it let's just leave it the way it is and so i realized after a couple of decades it's like okay we're hosting this economic engine this industrial corridor but our community isn't reflecting that so is it actually helping us or is it hurting us and I came to the conclusion it was hurting us. Mm -hmm. And so it was my thought that, and after doing a little bit of research, because I'm not an expert, so you know, to make it clear to everyone out there, I am a resident. I have no credentials other than common sense, okay? And so I saw that our community was not, not going through any revitalization, nothing was happening on the Southeast side of Chicago. As a matter of fact, I could easily see the degradation, you know, the, the, the huge numbers in unemployment, right? The mm -hmm. disinvestment in the community. Our schools were overcrowded. We had schools falling apart and we we're told there's no money for them. And so I just thought, this isn't making any sense. If we're gonna have to host these polluting industries, why aren't we compensated at the very least? If this is benefiting the entire city of Chicago, why aren't we being compensated for it? And if you ride through our community and see boarded up housing, empty lots, uh, business districts that are you know, struggling to survive, it made no sense to me. And so this is where I decided that this is what environmental racism looks like. You know, it's like ah. put, put, put the stuff that nobody else wants in the areas where there's least resistance, where people are less inclined to say anything, where people don't think they have a voice, put it there because then it's so much easier for 
the people in power to not have to deal with real challenges. It's just easier to stick it there. And it's always been that way. And I think that's what's most bothersome because it has always been that way. And we need to change that. Yeah, and, and your group joined two others to sue to stop General Irons project as an affront. Well, it's actually, affordable housing. Right. It's actually mm -hmm. it's actually a complaint. It's not quite it's a complaint. A okay. Because we want to make that clear. Uh, we basically said that the city, by facilitating the move of a company that wasn't wanted in a predominantly white right social economically advantaged neighborhood by putting it down here you were disadvantaging us i mean it was a disadvantage and it also is a way of kind of segregating housing it impacts our housing values it impacts you know a number of things and especially um like i said people who are around dirty industry it works on your mind you're dealing with smells and yeah. grit and grime you're dealing with noise you're dealing with truck traffic i mean once again why are we being overburdened to take care of the rest of the city why are we responsible for shouldering what's going to benefit the city as a whole why is that and how is that right do you think delaying the project enough may ultimately discourage it from happening well we're hoping to stop it i mean we don't want it to just be delayed we're hoping to stop it you know Rahm Emanuel started the process and this goes back to the plans for the north side and the river you know the the the, the city discovered that our rivers are wonderful assets people mm -hmm. love water think about it people love to yeah. be by water people love yeah. to buy water and so the uh, Chicago River up north was a working river, just like our Calumet River down here on the south side. It was at one time both working rivers. But recently, all of that industry was departing, right? A lot of manufacturing left on the north side. All of those companies were closing up. And in their wisdom, the city said, this is an asset we need to build on. And so they were making it a beautiful, they, they were gonna clean up the Chicago River. And that's a good thing from an environmental standpoint. We want our rivers to be clean. We want our waters to be clean. We want our wildlife to be able to sustain themselves on, on the water that's available. And people also, it was right. a good thing. What I didn't realize or was aware of that they didn't have those same plans for our Calumet River. Our Calumet River was gonna remain a dirty industrial site. And so when we discovered that, we were like, wait a minute, where's the equity in this? How is this fair? Like once again, why are we shouldering all this industry that you want to keep, you know, for the sake of tax bases and jobs and things like that? Why is it gonna be sent down to us? You know, like I said before, and I say about General Iron, if it's such a great thing and such a good business, which is what they're claiming it's going to be once it moves here, down there it's an ugly thing, but over here it's going to be a wonderful thing, right? According to what the company is touting, mm -hmm. uh, leave it over there. Let them, you know, let them have it. They can keep it over there. Why not? It's one company. We have a whole bunch of scrap metal yards, and that's the other argument. We have a metal operations. We don't need any more. 
So you can keep one up there and you should be happy with one because we have a whole lot more down here that we don't want. Exactly. Um, do you feel that Alderwoman Susan Garza is listening to the needs of her community? You know, she was very supportive with us on a number of other issues early on when she came into office. And I don't, don't know convinced her that she didn't, because remember, she was a relatively new alderwoman when this all mm -hmm. started. This process has been going on. This did not happen overnight, okay? We became aware of this like two years ago. And okay. we've been trying to make the community aware that this was an impending situation right and it's mm -hmm. hard to make people aware of something or resist it when they don't see it you know when we fought the pet coke issue they could see the black dust you know blanketing the community it was easy for them to make that connection but when you say something's coming it's harder to convince them of what that something is and why it's bad okay mm -hmm. Uh, so we took the issue to her a long time ago. And again, I don't know if the city convinced her that she couldn't do anything or she just thought that we were overreacting or if she felt like it wasn't such a bad thing. I don't know. All I know is that she disappointed us because we made her aware of it. And then she comes back and says she really didn't want it, but there was nothing she could do. But I don't believe that because we know older men do have some say so and if nothing else she could have publicly had asserted that she was against it and made it made the whole city aware as opposed to being silent and saying well there's nothing i can do and i'm i'm wondering um about our mayor mayor lori lightfoot has she has she been made aware of what's been happening she was made aware of it when she was running as a candidate. We made sure to attend the forums and bring these issues up to her. And that is why I think that's another grave disappointment to us because as a candidate, she made us believe that she truly understood our plight, what was going on, and that she, you know, was, was uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, she understood pathetic and supportive of our efforts, okay? Mm -hmm. And then what happens? She helps facilitate and brokers the deal for them to come here so that the company could move. Because let me make something clear. It is my belief mm -hmm. that General Iron didn't want to move. General Iron is a hundred year old operation that was completely content to remain where they were. But the city, like I said, in their effort to revitalize the north side and the, and the Chicago River, knew that you could not have such an ugly dirty, polluting operation in a neighborhood where property values were now, you know, in the millions of dollars, right? You can't, you just can't, that doesn't fly. And it wasn't gonna fly with residents moving into that community. And so they were determined to move it and help facilitate that move. So it is my belief that truly, if it were up to General Iron, the owners, they would have remained where they were. And that's why we say the city had a big hand in this whole situation. Wow. Uh, what is um, the mission of the task force? 
Our mission, because the task force has been around and it is a small grassroots organization. You see my office, it's, it's a storefront, nothing fancy, believe me. Okay. As a matter of fact, we'll warn you when you walk in because there are loose tiles and we don't want you to trip and fall. <laughs> <laughs> the point is our mission, of course, was environmental education. Mm -hmm. It was also uh, preservation of open space. And again, that might seem like an odd mission for a grassroots you know, organization that's city um, rooted because mm -hmm. most urban areas don't have open space. But on the southeast side, that's one of the things we do have that makes us very unique. And I don't know how familiar your audience is with the southeast side of Chicago, but we have over a thousand acres of park space right now as we speak. And they're doing restoration work on those parks because unlike traditional parks where you see a swing set and a baseball field, these are what they call natural parks. And so they're meant to be as natural with wetlands and open space and you know more on the forest looking kind of park than it is, like I said, a baseball field type of park. And so we're very fortunate, but again, it's taking years for them to do this work because we don't get the kind of funding. We're not targeted for the type of funding. I don't believe the way other areas of the city are. And so this has been going on since 2000 where they're doing this restoration work on the parks here in this area. They are open technically to the public now, but they're mm -hmm. still not complete. And so again, those are assets that we want to build on. That's why the open space preservation, we were instrumental in making sure that those areas were preserved because we understood the value of open space in an urban area. And so we want them to be the best they can be and, they, and, and assets to the community as well as economic drivers. And they can't be, and this is where I don't understand the city's logic, they can't be all that they can be if they're meant to be enjoyed by the public and to bring the public into nature. When you walk into those parks and you smell something that's alarming to you, you're not gonna to wanna to be there, okay? Exactly. Mm -hmm. If you think you're breathing some of the worst air quality in the city of Chicago, you're not gonna to wanna to be there. Mm -hmm. So this is why we're saying that this industry and them continuing to put this stuff here does it make sense if we want to be able to develop our natural assets and make them as valuable as they can be? Okay. Can a community strike a balance between creating jobs through industry and having a healthy neighborhood? I believe it's possible, but you have to examine what those jobs are because that's the other thing we've been maintaining. Certain industries cannot be in residential areas. Industries that emit all kinds of air pollution should not be across the alley from a residential area, okay? Mm -hmm. Things like General Iron, there will be air emissions. That's why they need air permits, okay? You don't need air permits unless you're gonna be emitting something into the air. Those kinds of things do not belong in a community. We also assert that some industries that are eyesores, just the fact that they're eyesores, okay, should not be in residential areas because 
that's enough to make people realize that this is not a community. They, it, it impacts the quality of life. I should not have to look across the street and see mounds of rusting steel. Okay, right. I should not have to do that. And so there are certain industries that shouldn't be in certain residential areas. There's just no doubt. Yes, jobs are important and local jobs are also important when it can be done. And the other issue is we should have learned from the lessons the steel industry taught us. You don't saturate a community with one type of job because when that industry collapses, the community collapses around it. So we're saying it's important that we should have a variety of offerings in terms of employment, not just one type, not just scrap metal yards, not just, you know, uh, salt haulers, not just, it, it's just makes sense that you don't saturate a community with any one type of industry. The cost of leaving a community environmental future solely in the hands of elected officials can have devastating consequences. Just look across Lake Michigan to Flint. You probably know the story of Flint, but do you know that the saga continues? This is the story of Michelle Mapson, and one community was forced to face the issue nearly five years ago. It was the Flint water crisis that really sort of catapulted the understanding of how a state like Michigan, which has the most fresh water in the world, could also at the same time have allowed such a travesty where drinking water, to this day, there are children who've never been able to turn on their tap and actually drink water. It's been about six years now, so there might be five and six year olds who again, have never known what fresh water, um, never known to trust their water even. So I think the, the extreme of knowing that um, there are those of us who don't necessarily think much about water. And to be fair, I live in Washington, D.C. And one of the sort of things we, we, we were told when you kind of move here is don't drink the water, definitely make sure it's filtered, kind of this joke. But the reality is that there are some some issues with the water here as well. Um, there's still lead-based pipes in D.C. and all across our country in urban areas. And so, um, again, juxtapositioning that some of us are thinking about clean water and and the fact that those of us don't have access to it versus some who, um, again, don't even have to give a second thought. Um, and in this country, that is not what you would expect. So I think it's, it's really been about six years now that I've been really in this movement and understanding the importance of clean water. Wow. Uh, when did, how did you first learn that water pumped into an, a house wasn't safe anymore? Like what was something that you could see, taste or read beforehand? What, what was kind of mm. the thought process? Well, the, the reality is that with lead, you cannot see it, you can't taste it, you can't smell it. Um, I've done an activity with children before where to help them understand um, what we mean by that is if you take water and you put, you know, dye in it or dirt, of course you can see that it's not clean and it's, right. main, it, it's something that gives you a signal not to drink it. Um, and then we'll take actually water, but we'll put alcohol in it. So just a bit of rubbing alcohol. And so I'll say, can you see anything? It looks fine, right? But then you go ahead and you smell it and you can tell right off something's not right. And then finally, just regular water that you wouldn't necessarily, you smell it, it doesn't smell like anything. It smells 
just fine, don't see anything. And we'd still be able to say, but there could be lead particles in this as well. That's the sort of insidious nature of lead. It's that it's a heavy metal, it has no place in our bodies, but that it can be present without us knowing. And the unfortunate part is that humans, or especially children, are sort of the canary in the coal mine. We don't know that there's lead until we test for that. First, we test the blood in children, and then we find out that, lo and behold, there's lead. And that's exactly what was happening in Flint. Um, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha was, was finding really high levels of lead in children that just simply did not make sense for it, for it to be an anomaly. And that was sort of the trigger to understand that there was something wrong with with the um, with the switch from the Detroit Water Authority to the Flint River water. Um, but I'll just also note that residents were also able to see other issues with the water when the water switched over before lead was an issue. Mm-hmm. The water was rusty, it smelled bad, um, folks had issues with rashes and breakouts and things like that. So um, there was certainly other indicators that water was not safe. Yeah. Um... Initially, did you think it would be an easy process to kind of fix the problem there in Flint? No, I think we, it's, it's one of those issues where the legacy of lead is so, it's, it's sort of, it's been left behind. Um, it's an expensive issue. It's an, it's, it's an issue worth addressing because the health benefit of making sure that you prevent the harms from lead for children, especially, far outweigh the cost of actually replacing the pipes. Yet, lo and behold, there are um, hundreds of uh, miles of pipelines across our country that haven't been replaced. Um, There simply hasn't been motivation enough to do that. Um, It is very difficult even to detect lead pipes, to know which pipes are are lead-based. There's sort of newer technology that's trying to help that be be, be sort of an easier approach so that you don't just have to dig up the pipes to figure that out. Um, But it is a very physical physical and labor-intensive thing to do to replace pipes and then to also ensure that down the line right so when you're replacing the pipes um that you're not disturbing the water elsewhere across the line for folks whose pipes are not being replaced so that you're not introducing more contamination to people um without knowing it so it's it's fairly complex but um we have the money to do so certainly um and i think the infrastructure issues in this country this is just yet another leg of the infrastructure issues that have to be fixed. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Uh, why do you believe the safe source of water was ever switched over to something else? Like you, you just talked about it, you just said how things mm-hmm. were switched from Detroit to Flint. Yeah, well, it's actually a fairly complex issue and it's interesting because when I first started under trying to understand this, it wasn't all very clear, but what we do know is um, there has been, there were criminal charges brought against um, against at least a dozen in, um, officials across the state uh, for this decision. And what became clear is that it was for financial reasons. Um, it was a cost-cutting measure um, to actually switch the water over. So there was a at that time um, that the switch was made, um, the sort of you could call it the contract cycle, if you will. Um, for renewing to continue working with that water authority in Detroit where they were getting uh, water from um, Huron River uh, was up and ready. And, and instead of renewing it, um, the emergency managers in Flint decided to actually switch to the Flint water, um, to the Flint River, excuse me, um, because there was actually another pipeline being hopefully going to be built 
that would um, bring water from another part of the state to Flint. But in the interim of that pipeline being built, the switch was made to the Flint River. Um, the Flint River was known to be corrosive. It was known as sort of a dumping ground from industrial sites like Ford and GM plants. Um, so even actually uh, GM decided they would not actually use the water from the Flint River because it was resting their parts. Um, so we knew early on, again, that there were indicators that this, this switch was not a good idea. And the other piece of it is that the um, water uh, utility, the public works utility in Flint was not um, up to par to be able to take on that switch. So the infrastructure, again, wasn't even there um, with, with the kind of public works infrastructure in Flint. But what exactly are the consequences of lead poisoning that impact communities of color in ways that we forget? Mapson's group is about making the connections. Believe it or not, at least one case of police brutality, the 2015 death of Freddie Gray in Baltimore, has lead paint at its root. Mapson reminds us. When Freddie Gray was killed, this was back in 2015 or 16, mm -hmm. uh, that we were really reeling from the protests and understanding that police brutality was very much alive and well. Um, the untimely death of Freddie Gray was was um, was harrowing for for many in our community. We also know that he was uh, poisoned by lead as a child. So he had suffered from lead poisoning. Um, and what we know is that lead poisoning impacts everyone's well-being. It impacts your ability to do well in school. It can cause ADHD. It can cause autism all kinds of behavioral issues. Um, and, and again, if we're not testing, we don't necessarily know kids who've been impacted by lead, but what we might call them are children who have behavioral problems, kids who get suspended and who don't get the type of educational services they actually need. And so our goal within Black Millennials for Flint when we were founded was recognizing that there was this sort of convergence of issues, if you will, um, in the social justice realm, environmental justice certainly being at the center of that, and wanting to figure out how do we eradicate lead across our country? How do we create a lead-free USA, especially for Black and Brown communities that have been forgotten? Um, you'll also remember that lead was used in gasoline. Um, so lead used to be used in a lot of different um, entities. And it, once that was removed, which was an issue that impacted every single person, white, black, brown, what have you, um, we sort of forgot that there were other issues with lead because, again, I think that forgot that the reason it was forgotten is because it was in uh, communities of color that often are not fully resourced. Um, so again, making those connections has been really important for us in our mission. And what we do beyond working in Flint and working with incredible partners, we, we're small but mighty, so we do a lot of our work um, in partnership with groups on the ground um, that are looking to either provide direct resources to folks who've been impacted by the water crisis, by educating people, by doing direct canvassing, by also connecting folks with their state legislators and people in Congress to make sure that the policies and any kind of improvements that are made um, in the wake of the crisis are actually community-led and community-driven. Um, and so some of those trainings we've been able to convene um, and be a part of. And also, again, in Washington, D.C., and Baltimore, and Memphis, Tennessee, where our other service areas are located, we've been able to duplicate some of those projects as well. Um, for instance, in Memphis, we were instrumental in starting a lead commission, um, which is looking at how to address lead in drinking water in schools. Um, 
So it's been a very, we, we've been able to do quite a bit in the last years. Um, and our goal is a Lead for USA. So we want to be able to do this work across every state um, and every city that would need this work. Yeah, and it, it's needed in many, many uh, cities and Memphis. Yeah, yeah, I have family down there. So that, oh, that kind of that kind of ting when you said that more than five years after the world learned about the hazardous water in Flint, is Flint's water safe to drink and use today? So authorities would tell you, yes, with the caveat that I and, and many public health officials and academics and pediatricians would say no. Um, so the lead levels in Flint have been te- tested to be below what the federal standard is. And that federal standard is much higher than what would be actually public, what would be safe for public health. Um, the safe level of lead is no lead <laughs> because lead is such a powerful neurotoxicant. Any, any amount of lead that you could be exposed to is unsafe. And so yes, there's actually still lead that can be detected in the water, but it's technically below federal levels, um, federal regulated levels. So folks are still on drinking bottled water. Um, there's still, again, many who have also noticed that there still can be ticks in the lead levels in their water. So because there's not enough certainty, um, that I, it's not safe still. And many would say Flint ain't fixed. It's not fixed um, because the lead pipes actually have not been replaced. That's still a very much ongoing effort. From the chemicals sprayed in our communities to the industries allowed to pollute our neighborhoods and even the discount paints that cover our walls in decorative shades of poison, as black and brown people, we have weathered decades of environmental racism. Now, it's up to us to come together and talk to one another, seek out information, and confront those groups, business or civic, who don't have our long-term health as their priority. For more information about Southeast Environmental Task Force, please visit their website at setaskforce.org. And for more information about Black Millennials for Flint, That can be found at Black Millennials, the number four, flint.org. In future episodes, we'll keep you updated on the issues raised on today. Next time on Interludes. These are the little sound bites I'm going to see on TMZ. John not being able to answer, not being able to remember the title track. I believe Leaf is the official Joker of Nineveh Road. I believe yes, he is. He is. <laughs> I believe he yeah. is. Well, first off, I'm gonna say, Benny, there are so many people listening to this right now that don't even know what Maxell is. I, I was like, Nineveh Road sounds good. I, I yeah. like the way yeah. that sounds. The Soul Rock Group, Nineveh Road, on the next interludes. Interludes, original concept by Valerie Johnson, written by Michael Womble, produced by Michael Womble and Valerie Johnson, original music intro and outro produced by Kendall Nesbitt. Interludes, a pure lighthouse production, brought to you by A1 Pestmasters. 
For all your exterminating and pest control needs, call A1 Pestmasters at area code 773-365-9962 or visit their website at a1pestmasters.com. When you book your appointment with A1 Pestmasters, tell them that you heard it first on the podcast called Interludes. <laughs>